So I know we started off last week with my saying, one of these days, we're going to have to record the pre-show. The pre-show. Mm-hmm. Okay. If today wasn't the day for that. Okay. And I, and I, hate, <laughs> right. and I hate to, you know, tease y'all listening and, and all of that stuff. I'm so tired when it comes to the police and when it comes to this whole conversation. I guess a part of me is grateful for the fact, Scott, that we do a lot of this, you know, preparing the conversations and all that before we cut on the mics because I don't want to be hollering people's ears off and all of that stuff. But what is there left to say? Well, I guess the first thing to be said is rest in peace, Amir Locke. Mm -hmm. I wasn't sure if this news would go national about uh, the way the police murdered him. But a couple days ago, like the day before yesterday, folks started texting me, even uh, Brandon Keith Brown, shout out to uh, BKB, all the way over in Germany, Mm -hmm. texting me about this being news over there. So here we go again. Listen, they're lucky it's not hot outside. They're lucky it's freezing outside Mm -hmm. because I believe that we would have it again. Well, you know that there was like a... a, loads and loads of people in their cars went down and just jammed the intersections around his building. Oh, of course. Yeah. Of course. I I knew about that part. Yeah. Don't, um, don't assume that there was no reaction from the public. It was just modified. Sure. Sure. And not to mention that the trial for the other three officers and the George Floyd killing, that trial is happening right now. Mm -hmm. And they're keeping that as hush, hush, quiet, quiet as they can. We need to make sure we keep a, a close eye on that. Listen, what what are we supposed to say at this point about the police? How can we continue to go on with the bad apple narrative when we have a whole squad that rushed into that man's apartment, killed him on his couch, minding his own business, and that whole squad belongs to a whole precinct, which belongs to a whole structure in the city of Minneapolis? They, those things aren't disconnected from mm-hmm. one another. How am I supposed to have anything positive to say about that infrastructure? How am I not supposed to believe that it could one day be me on my couch? Yeah, I understand. It says a lot when, excuse me, it says a lot when a well-known Minnesota gun rights advocacy group writes a letter and has multiple people signing on that says, you know, along to the effect that any legal gun owner should be nervous, should be upset, should be aware of how that went down. And, you know, uh, the, their account, the department's account was not, again, not in line with the video. I, I, I don't understand why they do that knowing that the video will come out. You know what I mean? And that's what I'm getting at. What do you want me to say? Because we know they will lie. They lied in the George Floyd case. Mm. We wouldn't know anything about the knee on the neck if it weren't for that video. And that did not appear in the first police report. That's a a good point. That's fact. That, that That is on the record. So we know that they lie. And we see this over and over again. So we have to talk about the systems that either fuel that or oppose that. Uh, a couple of days ago, you know, Joe Biden got on TV in front of the podium and is talking about pushing more money into local police. So let's actually go over some of these numbers. I, I was so upset by it. I got to doing some research. So I'm going to uh, link my uh, sources in the description. Y'all can look things up if you want to uh, do some comparisons. But overall, 
in the city of Minneapolis. See, this feels like a national number, a national dollar amount to me. But this is in the city of Minneapolis. The budget for the police is nearly $194 million. That makes up for 35% of the city's spending, which averages to about $444 in taxes per citizen. Every citizen, these folks don't have for a hundred dollars mm-hmm. and they're being mm-hmm. taxed that much so that the police can go and shoot these folks. And you have state and national governments that if they see a problem, they only see it in word because they're talking about sh- jamming more money into these systems. So we see where the support for these state sanctioned murders are coming from. What I think is important for us to talk about is where's the opposition from this coming from. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about just on the on the artistic front and standing in solidarity. I was very surprised and very um how can I because it's not happy is not the word I can say, but I was very um uh let, 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 let's just say encouraged to see that the Minnesota Orchestra responded by uh, collaborating with a local graffiti artist, and they have a mural in front of Orchestra Hall honoring the now late Amir Locke. Mm-hmm. They're working on mending relationships with communities. We talked about this before we cut on the microphones. A lot of orchestras, a lot of institutions, and a lot of individuals see the work as giving institution stamps of approval, mm-hmm. you know, giving them the pass that, okay, now you're one of the good guys or whatever. The Minnesota Orchestra, from my perspective, understands that it's something that is ongoing and mm-hmm. that has to continue. Right. They have a Black Lives Matter statement outside of, and this is not me riding for the Minnesota Orchestra. Please don't hear that from me. And what I'm saying is that they have a Black Lives Matter statement outside of Orchestra Hall all the time. They've, they've, they've had it for a, a couple years now when, you know, everyone experienced that so-called racial awakening, right. you know, it's something that they acknowledge in much uh, of their programming, their new uh, recording initiative. Uh, we, we have uh, th- this mural to Amir Locke. Again, I hope people don't hear me just sitting here riding for the Minnesota Orchestra as much as you hear that the work has to continue toward mending the relationship. I'm not sure if I'm yet willing to go spend my hard-earned money going to hear Sibelius play by the Minnesota Orchestra. I'm not there, but I understand and recognize that this is an institution that is responding in some way. So when Paviel goes over there, performs, or whenever they have something going on, or when I have the opportunity to uh, platform one of their recordings of a lot of this Black music that doesn't exist anywhere else, I also have that, and I also honor them for that. So you know, as we think about police brutality and how this thing is not going away, I hope, Scott, that we can inspire more people within more of the arts institutions to not take a neutral stance because there is no such thing as a neutral stance. We need to see conservatories of the state schools of music. We need the radio stations, the orchestras, the opera houses to actively and openly and visibly respond to this scourge that is on our society that is the police. Just to provide a little bit of context for anyone who isn't from Minnesota or listening in Minnesota, Governor, uh, Governor, Mayor Fry was recently reelected and the ballot initiative to look at police funding was refused. Were you surprised when that went down? I was. I was shocked. 
considering that most of the uh, the damage, the so-called violence in 2020 took place over there. Mm-hmm. It, it seemed like that awoke that would have woken somebody up. Mm. I just think it's important important for people to realize that you know this this is something that um, I. I keep looking at other people's Twitter feed where they go, we see you, Minneapolis. Yeah. You know? um, and I, I'm not laughing. No, I, I know. I, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm just, it, it's, a, it's a nervous laugh, I guess. And I don't want to rehash anything when it comes to me and, and my relationship with this conversation and the profession and how I chose to respond to the murder of George Floyd, X, Y, and Z. I don't want to rehash, but... We owe it to ourselves to consider the question in this moment as a radio broadcaster in classical music, what am I supposed to do? Mm -hmm. Go play some Beethoven or some Joseph Sook or some uh, Luigi Baccarini or some Rossini and just tell some cute little story about their lives when they were young composer or, or make some, is that what I'm supposed to do in light of, of what is going on? Is that how I mend and create relationships between the arts institution I'm a part of and the community? No, it's not. So when are we going to begin to really have the conversation of how the smallest unimportant things like programming can provide proximity for institutions and communities and how we can move forward together for our well-being? A person is dead. A person is dead. You know that I no longer give timelines. What do you mean? You said how long? How long? Oh yeah, yeah. I hear you. I hear you. I thought you were asking me. I thought you were winding up for a, a <sighs> question. Rest in peace. Rest in peace and rest in power to Amir Locke. And and he and he's one of the names here locally. One one of the names. Mm-hmm. It's like there 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 are two more there there are too many to even to name and to even talk about. That's why I wasn't sure if it was national news or not because it's so right. many people. Right. Everyone locally has a story. You know, Amir Locke's mother is one mother. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, you know, we, we, can, we can talk about this all day, but that has to be named. Mm-hmm. Rest in peace to Amir Locke and arts institutions of all types play a role in this conversation, whether you like it or not. There's no neutral stance. You're saying something and doing something about this or you're not. And that's just that. All right. All of that to get us into this week's downbeat. Okay, so last week we ended talking about Spotify, right? And how Mm -hmm. Triloquy is no longer a part of Spotify. Mm -hmm. That conversation has continued to evolve and grow. It started with Neil Young and Joni Mitchell and and several others have uh, fallen suit and removed uh, their music from Spotify. Someone who had some words to say that I was encouraged to hear her say something was India Ari. For mm-hmm. folks who don't know who India Ari is, if y'all weren't there, if y'all don't know what she did, you need to go look up some of India Ari's music. She's there. My int- we talked about this before I cut on the mics. My introduction to the song um, "While My Guitar Gently Weeps" was her version with Santana. Mm-hmm. You know, so she's she's out here educating the kids on the music that happened before and bringing Black Soul to the front in a way that uh, in a way like no one else has done. Anyway, she made a decision to remove her music from Spotify, and she offered a few words to explain herself. So let's take a listen. I empathize with the people who are leaving for the COVID disinformation reasons, and I think that they should. I also think that Joe Rogan has the right to say what he wants to say. I also think that I have the right to say what I want to say. 
So as an artist who builds, Spotify is built on the back of the music streaming. So they take this money that's built from streaming and they pay this guy $100 million, but they pay us 0.003% of a penny. Just take me off. That's where I'm at. And I know that uh, I'm actually, to be honest with you, surprised that my statements were picked up because I thought people weren't really going to listen to me because that's what I'm the kind of that's what I'm used to from the industry. But I'm glad that I am being heard. And for that reason, I want to clarify my statements again. First of all, let's let, let's address the last part of what she said. She didn't expect anyone to even give a damn. Right. Is basically what she's talking about. Mm -hmm. what's, what's your reaction to that? That she didn't have that, that she didn't like think some, anyone would even bother to care. Man, it isn't that unfortunate. It is, and I also, I think that a lot of people who say that are lowballing themselves. Hmm. Loads of people are going to care. It only takes one person to say something nice to you to sort of turn things around for a day. And look at the response she's getting from that huge response from her. Video. I mean, I I care. You know, exactly. for sure. I, exactly. Like I said, I was happy to hear something. All right. Where do we draw the line? This is the conversation I want to have based on what she said. Where do we draw the line when it comes to what we will put up with out of someone or something that we have aligned ourselves with? Okay, so back in 2016, when the previous uh, president was running for election, for some people, the racist statements that he was making mm -hmm. was not a deal breaker. Mm -hmm. And many mm -hmm. of these people are people who see themselves as not racist and would never say those things and may have even opposed and critiqued the racist things he said. But at the end of the day, it wasn't a deal breaker for them to support him. Right. Mm -hmm. OK, so let's move that over into Spotify for India. Ari, the fact that they were giving Joe Rogan. Someone who she has, uh, she put the, I didn't uh, air the whole thing, but she, in the previous part of the video, she's showing a, a clip of about 20 seconds of different areas, uh, different excerpts of Joe Rogan saying using the N-word, okay? So for her, for Spotify to put $100 million behind that person, mm -hmm. that level of racism was a deal breaker for her. Yeah, It's not a deal breaker for all artists, okay? So outside of having the conversation of, of passing judgments, what I want to know is, how can we draw the line and where do we draw the line? What, what does that conversation look like for you? You're talking about uh, the company you keep, right? Basically. Yeah. You know, so who's, right. who are you? Yeah. So I told you the, the money thing was enough for me to ditch them months ago. So it's the fact that they aren't even putting respect on the artists when it comes to the money that they pay. Um, cause what did she say? 0.003% of a penny, something like that, which is Ooh. ridiculous, which, you know, um, then no, because I value my, if I were an artist, I would say I value my work mm -hmm. more right. than that. And if people are going to listen to my stuff, I want them to buy my album yeah, or subscribe to my live stream. Like, uh, Brucey Palmer does. For me, the, you're talking again. You're talking about what more will it take for other oh, right, artists yeah. to jump? Right. Is or, that what you're saying? Or, or, or for any of us to to jump? Yeah. Again, back to the back to the question I was asking. How how do you how how do we royal we draw the line between what is a deal breaker and what is not? So you know, uh, again, all right. You said for you, it was the uh, the the lack of equity that they showed to artists. Okay, that was a deal breaker. Mm -hmm. um, let's say they paid their artists a hundred percent 
of whatever, however the streams happen. And Joe Rogan doing all of this, you know, being hopefully a deal breaker for you. Where where do we draw those lines? I guess I guess it's a question of of morals and values. Right. Well, for me, that would have been it then. The the Rogan incident. Because yeah. if they were paying people adequately, then then I I would give them my money. Yeah. So in an effort, again, like I said before, of not casting blame or 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 throwing judgment around, how do we encourage other people, collaborate, talk with people for whom those sorts of things are not a deal breaker? Great question. I'm not sure. And I ask that question because it's a concept that bleeds directly into art spaces. First and foremost, we have to remember and always recognize that racism is bigger than saying the N-word. Saying, you know, a person can never say the N-word in their life and be a racist, okay? So we, we tend to boil it down to that. But when we really look at the systemic nature of it, the practice of racism, the way that we have viewed classical music, the way that we have defined classical music is a part of that. Okay, for a lot of people, maintaining that structure is not only not a deal breaker, something that they will fight for. And I feel like for us to shift the narrative of Western classical music, so-called classical music, to include more people and to do all of these things that these institutions allege to do, we have to begin to recognize that certain things for us should be a deal breaker. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, we aren't there. We talked to, you know, we, we've returned to the conversation a couple of times of us talking about Debussy and his nonsense and all of those sorts of things. For me, that's a deal breaker. For other people, it's not. OK, so we're here. We have to have these conversations. We have to say and name these things in an effort to inspire each other to take whatever actions that we're able to take so that we can all move forward together. Again, rest in peace to Amir Locke. We're here to try to be those folks in the industry, inspiring people to put their foot down and not let racism just run rampant, mm -hmm. to make sure that racism in the way that it exists and manifests in the art, to make that a deal breaker and for us to change things. Let's get into it. I'm Scott Blankenship. And this is Triloquy, Opus 137. I had to scroll up to the top of my notes. <laughs> <laughs> Opus 137, returning listeners, thank you so much for returning at least 137 times, or at most, I guess, 137 <laughs> times. Thank you so much for being here and, and continuing to support this project that we have going and maintaining our status as a vital part of the arts ecosystem. My extreme gratitude to you. Thank you so much to returning uh, to new listeners. Thank you so much for visiting, for checking us out. Triloquy is a podcast 
that takes the idea of classical music and works to decolonize it through conversation, through proximity to pieces of music that weren't always or haven't always been considered classical and everything in between. For more information and to find out ways that you can support and donate, please visit Triloquy.org, T-R-I-L-L-O-Q-U-Y.org. In addition to your support, support for Triloquy comes from Springboard for the Arts, a local organization supporting artists, as, as well as shout outs this week to New Hampshire Public Radio for picking up the sound of 13, I think a, a really great uh, special, especially for Black History Month for any markets who haven't picked it up already. So thank you to New Hampshire Public Radio. I'm already getting lots of positive feedback on that. And uh, to 10th Radio, they're a streaming radio uh uh, organization uh, geared specifically to black audiences, black news, black media. They've taken on the Sound of 13. So I'm really glad that that project is spreading around and more people are checking it out. All right. Well, let's uh, we're we're already over 20 minutes in. So let's go ahead and get into movement one. I want to jump right in this week, Scott. I have a uh, basically a football <laughs> accidental because oh, there's going to okay. be some sort of sports match this weekend between a couple of the teams. So, oh, was that this weekend? I think so. This oh, coming okay. Sunday. Okay. Yeah, I, I put it in my in my calendar to say something about uh, the Super Bowl, the the so called <laughs> Super Bowl. So I'm I'm going to start with the sharp because well, and the first thing I'm going to say, Scott, is in my radio programming, I'm pretty good at creating programming using uh, pieces of music from the canon, the so-called canon and otherwise, to form around a narrative or a story or something I want to say. The most challenging one for me has always been sports. Can you put together a good hour of, of uh, programming that will allow you to talk about sports? Depends on the sport. Way? About football, I guess. Since I know that uh, I, I think Charles Ives, the composer played uh, for the Yale football team. Oh, is that and, right? And there's and he even wrote, there's one piece of music out there, at least in the American canon, with the word football in the title, American okay. Football Match or something like that. But um, th- that's one of the difficult ones for me to do. Usually in June and July, I can usually make some hay from the Tour de France. Oh, sure. See, um, we got we to gotta get on a bicycle to, <laughs> to make classical music match sports. Look at us. And <laughs> all, all I'm saying, hey, well, there was, a, there was a, a composer who was a cyclist, and he died after driving his bike into a brick wall. Who was that? Um, it's, <laughs> yep, it's on the tip of my tongue. He was a violinist. I'll have it to you by the by, end. By the time we get done recording. Yep. All right. Well, anyway, all of that to say, I'm going to talk a little bit about it because we can connect the arts with the sporting arts, and, uh, and and there are even some crossovers I'm going to uh, speak to. But to get us there again, I'm, I'm going to start with a sharp. And it goes not to the NFL hmm. <laughs> at all, but to Spike Lee. There's been an announcement that Spike Lee is going to produce the Colin Kaepernick documentary. I'm reading a little bit here from BET.com. It says Spike Lee and Colin Kaepernick are collaborating on an upcoming documentary that will feature a never-before-seen archive that will tell his story from his perspective. According to a press release, Kaepernick, who has never given a full first-person account of his journey, is collaborating closely with Lee, who plans to use extensive new interviews and a vast never-before-seen archive. Scott, Colin Kaepernick said that he's never actually told his story, and we, and, but we sure know the story, don't we? It's mm-hmm. interesting how that, how that 
feels, you know, for, for so many words and ideas to be circling around you and you're raising your hand, the person everyone is talking about, and you're like, um, well, actually, X, Y, and Z. That's, you know, a, but... that's what I was going to say. <laughs> yeah, we know the story from everybody else telling it. Right, right. Yeah, it would be great to hear him in more than like a 10-minute, 60 minutes interview or something. Now, you're old enough and you're down enough to know what Spike Lee has done. Yeah. If it, it's a lot of people who have done a lot of things on film. Spike Lee is different. So my thing is, who else? Who else to tell the Colin Kaepernick story than Spike Lee? And that's not to erase Ava DuVernay and Regina King and all of the incredible other uh, black women and men out here who are also qualified. But what I'm saying is, Spike Lee is demand. Mm -hmm. And if anybody's going to tell the story in a way that I can trust, right. it's him. I'm excited. Is there? I'm sure you. When it comes out, at some point, you'll watch it. You'll you'll get sure. across to it. When you watch it, is there anything in particular that you'll be interested to hear or interested to get some more insight on? Considering the fact that Kaepernick is sitting here saying, "I never told my story to y'all." Well, it's been long enough, and like you said, enough other people are talking about it that I want him to tell the origin story. Mm -hmm. What black man's death was it? What uh, what part of the you know sure have him lay it out what inspired him but yeah. most but more importantly he had a conversation with someone uh, I think it was a veteran that suggested he kneel rather than stand with a fist above his head right oh it, well he was gonna he started off just sitting on the bench oh did he yeah okay and I okay think, and, and tell I think, that and I think the story was he talked with the service person and the service person was like, well, if you take a knee, you're making your point and it's offering respect. Right. Okay. So the differentiation between the action getting the desired response, I think that's a conversation I'd love to hear. And that's the thing about Spike Lee, because if he was, <laughs> if he was sitting right here in the studio, he was like, well, I've got that veteran on the line. Let's hear from him. You know, so, <laughs> so you know that he, there's going to be an interview of him. Yeah, you're right. That, that'll be really you know, that's going to be one of the things that I need the white people to see, especially the veterans and the uh, the, the uber Americans. Right. Because right. and I don't know if the, the service person was uh, white. Or it not. was a white man. Oh, it was. OK. Yeah. So they need to see a service man. One of these people that they worship idealistically, you know, protecting America, saying what he said to Colin Kaepernick, because that part was bulldozed over mm -hmm. the whole time. Yep. You know, yeah. I'm really interested in Kaepernick's early life. I want to know how race and racialization played a role in his upbringing and then what that meant, you know, once he became an adult. I, you know, every black person I know has the story of their parents saying, you know, basically, uh, introducing the reality of race to them, whether mm -hmm. it's, you know, you can't play with this kid or, you know, some people in the world just think this way. For me, I haven't thought about this for a long time. I'm not going to turn this into a therapy session, but it just popped into my mind. For me, when I was in first grade, I was a part of a uh, Cub Scout group and, you know, the dads hosted every, every time, you mm -hmm. know, we rotated houses. Right. And one of the weeks we didn't go. And, and my parents just set me oh. down and they were like, you know, some people in this world are going to treat you different because and this is something that I have to swallow first grade. So you're six years old, five or six years old, and I have to swallow this then. And I'm not remembering that traumatically. I'm just remembering it as a reality 
to and growing up black. You know, now as an aside, <laughs> to pull over for a second, as Katie and Delaney say, shout out uh, to classically black. If I can swallow that, or rather, if I have to swallow that, if black kids have to swallow that at age six and seven and eight, what sort of patience am I supposed to have for grown ass white people who can't swallow it, mm-hmm. who who don't want to have the conversation? But anyway, I want to see if that was a conversation in the Kaepernick household sure. and how that played out. That That's what I would really love to uh, to get into in the documentary. But most importantly, if there's any one thing that I really hope to see out of this uh, Spike Lee documentary, I want to hear Colin Kaepernick speak to why that situation needs to be remembered. I'm not saying that it doesn't need to be, but I'm saying I, I want to hear his thoughts on being branded in that way. Mm. When we When we hear the name Colin Kaepernick, we think about the price he paid, mm-hmm. not you know some mm-hmm. big achievement that he, uh, you know, w- and was continues able to, do. to pay. Right, exactly, exactly. Um, I want to, I want to hear that. I know that, uh, you know, having to pay the price, and and we're not talking about death, but getting fired from a job specifically. I can even speak to it. It's it's a delicate balance between not living in it and not forgetting about it or inspiring people to remember, especially if we believe it was for a cause, you Mm -hmm, know? So mm -hmm. I'll lift this off from me and refocus on Colin Kaepernick. I wonder why you think this is something that we should remember, something that we have to not forget. Right now, Colin is inspiring a generation of people of color who will cite that event mm-hmm. as their moment sure yeah you're right start getting into sports or getting into activism or whatever it is and i think that a lot of those people are probably drawing on his image and not not his image his strength his um um perseverance his perseverance yeah. his you know his his personality long suffering so right <laughs> So now my my point is, th- he his name is going to come up again down the road. Oh yeah, as other people, he, he's a legend. Just come yeah. come forward and cite him as their inspiration for whatever they do. Yeah, yeah, you're right. That that moves me, and what moves me even more is thinking about how for someone, if not for a national football audience, if only for one other person, mm-hmm. we can be that. Right. We right. can we we can we can be that inspiration, and you're not gonna you're not going to hear about it developing. It's just going to be blam. Here comes this person with some incredible uh, talent or some incredible new idea or invention, and they're going to say, you know, I remember when Colin Kaepernick, blah blah blah. blah right, blah, blah. right. So for individuals, for those of us with connections to institutions with very long arms with mm-hmm. a broad reach. If if we're thinking along those lines, how how can we not push? How how can we not want to take advantage of that? I'm I'm really I'm really speaking to everybody with a platform right now. Shout out to LaRob. Uh uh my friend LaRob, he recently got on the radio, classical radio down in Chicago, and he tweeted <laughs> on the uh on Saturday that uh, he was playing the Shaft theme, and he tagged me. He's like, Garrett McQueen will be so proud. I am proud. And, you know, when I think about that, I think about the the impact 
that is a classical piece of music, right? And he was posting the mad emails. <laughs> I saw a few. <laughs> he was posting them, but who cares? And LaRob is younger than me. So, you know, Generation Z really don't give a damn <laughs> about the traditional public radio audience and, and all of that sort of thing. Anyway, all, all of that blabbering to say we can all be that inspiration if we have the courage to be that inspiration. Okay. Mm. All right. Um, while we're here, for the past few weeks, People have been sending me DMs, articles, all sorts of things that deal with dancers at this year's halftime show at the Super Bowl. Long story short, they were trying to get free dancers to trying to not pay for it and asking dancers if they would be willing to come offer their services for free. Anyway, all of that has come to a head. And I'm going to read a, a quick little thing here that I found from Yahoo Sports. I mean, I have been in the sports rags this week. I've, I must care about this project. You feel all right? <laughs> it says here, SAG AFTRA and the producers of the Super Bowl halftime show have met and had an open and frank discussion and have agreed that no professional dancers will be asked to work for free as part of the halftime show. SAG-AFTRA will be advising our professional dancer members that they should not be rehearsing or working on the Super Bowl halftime show without compensation. This is what I want to lift out of that conversation. So you co-founded a theater, and I'm sure you had to call in some favors every now and again, or did you? What well, was was everyone paid? What uh, what Broadway and Washington National Theater and all these folks pay at at the Shelter Belt? It was community theater, right? People were doing it for love of the game. Okay, we have to make sure that we draw a line, and I, I want I want to talk about this because a lot of the narratives I've seen have been people digging in their heels on the subject of my fee is my fee and I'm never sacrificing it in X, Y, and Z. Everyone has a right to that. What I want to offer to offer a little nuance to that conversation is that there is a difference between working with our community members, our peers, one another, and working with an institution like the Super Bowl or the producers of the Super Bowl halftime show. There are things that I do for free because I'm doing it for a friend or I'm doing it for this and I'm or I'm doing it for that, you know. Um, but then there are some institutions that I could never allow to get free work out of me. So I just want to make sure that we are considering the nuance in this conversation. Refusing to dance for free, to perform for free for the Super Bowl, a billion dollar industry is not the same as negotiating with peers or collaborators or if someone needs you to lay a line down or something. Now, I'm not saying that anyone just needs, has to be open to working for free, but I just feel like that consideration has to be named when we have the conversation about paying artists their fair share, paying artists for their work. Sounds like Spotify. Yeah. They don't want to pay nothing for the entertainment that they're selling all these ads around. They 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 just want to they invest in the message that they want to invest in. GFOH. You know? How did you uh, engage that conversation back in your shelter belt theater days? I'm sure pay equity was something that you thought about, but nobody you said got love paid. the game yeah. yeah nobody got paid we everything that we made at the door was to keep the lights on and the and the rent did going you and all did that. you ever have but to go ahead when i also had an agent a commercial agent so whenever i would do print or commercial um shoots mm -hmm. there was a minimum that you knew you would get like if you're just going to be in the background or whatever of course 100 bucks yeah 
And then everything else was hourly. So and did you ever have to deal with uh, a, a collaborator, an artist, someone you wanted to bring in, and they required a fee that you just couldn't provide? Yeah, yeah. there was one. Uh, now we got to go back to the shelter belt. There was one guy that we wanted to cast who was in the SAG after union. And if mm -hmm. we cast him, that meant we had to pay him. Yeah. So we did not. Mm. It's we didn't have the money. Right, right. It's it's a I, I just want to make sure everyone is is thinking about the conversation holistically. I mean, I definitely believe that there's no reason for any corporation institution of that size to not be paying anyone for anything. And in the spirit of equity, let's, you know, work with each other in the best way that we can when we're talking about grassroots peer to peer that sort of thing. I think it's just easy for a lot of the folks on the ground trying to do things to get left behind or erased when we automatically feel like we have to throw money mm -hmm. into the conversation. There's one more thing, one more Super Bowl adjacent thing and a Colin Kaepernick adjacent thing I wanted to bring up. In doing all this sports research, I came across a little piece that was published around this time last year on Unison Media. The title of it is that Unison Media, Classical Music Gets a Contemporary Makeover. They're talking a lot about themselves, but there's an anecdote here I want to share. It says, when classic music tenor Lawrence Brownlee took the field at MetLife Stadium to sing the national anthem at a San Francisco 49ers football game, he felt conflicted. On the field, 49er quarterback Colin Kaepernick was leading a league-wide protest against that very anthem. As a fellow African-American man, he was sympathetic to Kaepernick and the Black Lives Matter movement, but as a musician and son of a war veteran, he felt the need to sing. Brownlee decided to release a public statement on social media to express his dilemma and the outcome. He would, quote, sing with the conflicting emotions that pull my heart. I think that's an interesting intersection of so-called classical music and the sport, especially to see what won at the end of the day. And this is no shade to Lawrence Brownlee, but I feel like there are so many, again, as we were talking about being someone else's inspiration, so many opportunities where we have to think about the bigger picture. I'll, I'll, I'll say it that way. We all have personal feelings, personal experiences. Mm -hmm. It would have been huge for opera to see some sort of protest on that level. We talked about it, uh, remember when we were talking about Selma and uh, how Daniel Bernard Romain wrote the lyrics, God bless America, God damn America, and the black woman who was supposed to sing it originally decided that wasn't her bag and, 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 and couldn't do it. Mm -hmm. We have to get over that hump because there's so much more that's possible than the maintenance of some patriarchal structure that has a leader who believes more money needs to be put into local police departments. Mm -hmm. You see, all of those things connect. And that's, you know, the, the point, the, the big point is folks in the arts, you know, we tend to see ourselves outside of, of that circle of, of motion, but we're very much in it and we're being pulled more into it as time goes on. So as we're pulled into this circle, whether we like it or not, we have the opportunity to go with the stream or go against the stream. And I want people to think about that. And I want people to consider that and think, and, and especially with the Super Bowl coming up, because all of these things connect. There are folks who laid it down and don't see the benefit because it's not a deal breaker 
for individuals to be a part of those infrastructures. It's not a deal breaker for millions of people and millions of dollars and dozens of advertisers to align themselves with the NFL on Super Bowl Sunday, um, considering Colin Kaepernick and all of the other stories that we will never know. You know, that's not a deal breaker for those folks. It's not me casting judgment. It's me trying to inspire more of us to face the thing. Mm -hmm. If we can really look at it, and make the decision, yes, this is a deal breaker for me, or no, this isn't a deal breaker for me. We can have more honest conversations and not conversations that are sort of flowered and decorated with niceties and and all of those things that get us away from the point, which gets us further away from solutions. We have to begin to have the conversations, but we have to be honest with each other as we have those conversations. We sort of talked about this last week, but uh, I'll, I'll ask the question again in relation to um, Lawrence Brownlee and activists in the arts on the ground who may have made a different decision. How do we build that solidarity, the morale among all of us who are aware of the issues in classical music that we're trying to face, but deal with them in different ways based on what we need financially or, or whatever other decisions Mm -hmm. are there. Have have you had time to stew on that? How can we just build that solidarity, build the bridge between, as I said last week, the on the ground activists and the CEO of X orchestra or X conservatory. I think that there's a lot of folks out there who think that they're doing the right thing when you bring up DEI. Mm -hmm. Right. So, um, a lot of folks are going to get it wrong, and I think that they need to keep doing it. I know that there are a lot of people who are going to come at you that you made a mistake here, you made a mistake there, or this is offensive, which we're going to be talking about in another accidental. Mm-hmm. Um, now pick yourself up and go and try again because it's better than doing nothing. Does that answer your question? It does. Let's go ahead and put a bow on that one. I've been preaching enough for just one accidental. I returned, of course, so circling back to Spike Lee. Of course, I returned to the soundtrack of Do the Right Thing. I think a lot about, uh, I, I hate to stretch this out longer, but I have to say this. I think a lot about Samuel L. Jackson's character as sort of the, not overseer in an oppressive way, but the, the character that sees all, you know, the, he the Greek the, chorus, he right. The Greek chorus. Right. Yeah. I, th- I think about that a lot. And, you know, again, rest in peace to Amir Locke. There, there are people who could be that everywhere and aren't because mm-hmm. they're worried about, and that's even beyond classical radio. We, we, ha- we have to, we have to name those things. We have to think anyway, I return to, the soundtrack to do the right thing, you know, thinking about how to transition out of this. And I found myself really grooving to Steel Pulse. And I never mm. knew their name as a band. I recognized the sound from the movie, but I appreciated uh, diving into to more of their more of their catalog. So we're going to listen to a little bit of one of their tunes to transition to our next accidental uh, Steel Pulse tune here called Don't Shoot. Yes, they're aiming just to gun down our children. 
Imagine going down to Jamaica or any other Caribbean country and telling them that that's not classical music. Mm -hmm. Going to down and trying to teach them something about <laughs> what classical music is. Right. It's that, it, it is that ridiculous to me that we have we, we take that aesthetic and remove it from the idea of classical music here in the United States. It's, it's really ridiculous if you really think about it. Anyway, uh, Steel Pulse, Don't Shoot, a live recording there from Pay Studios. I'll have that in the description of this opus. What accidental you got for us this week? I have a short, but first, it was Ernest Chanson, the composer who rode his bicycle, rode his bicycle into everywhere. a brick wall and died instantly. That's how he died? Yep. Huh. So there you have it. So I'm glad I closed that loop. And well, it's, rest ser him. it's serendipitous <laughs> that uh, you brought in something on the documentary tip because so did I. The story of hip hop is going to be told by who else? Chuck D. Tell us more. Of public enemy fame. Right. So uh, I'm looking at blackenterprise.com. The hip-hop community, this is Chuck D speaking, the hip-hop community has, from the start, been doing what the rest of media is only now catching up to. He said in a written statement, long before any conglomerate realized that it was time to wake up, hip-hop has been speaking out and telling truths. Working with PBS and BBC. Whatever that is. British Broadcasting Corporation. <laughs> Go ahead. Over there in the Brits, right. Is an opportunity to deliver this message through new ways and help explain hip-hop's place in history and hopefully inspire us all to take it further. I'm going to ask a question that I know a lot of people right now listening are asking. What the hell you know about Public Enemy? You weren't there, or were you? I, was, I wasn't at the show, but I had the album. You were there when there the music when was. 100%. Right. And uh, a lot of it in the moment I didn't understand. I only knew that it was important because Chuck D raps with authority. Okay, let's unpack that. You you didn't understand it, but still somehow you knew that this was something that you needed to know mm -hmm. or you needed to be abreast Sure, of. and you've got Flavor Flav coming in. You know, to, he was the Greek chorus there. He was the one telling what was going on in the streets. Yeah, the and kids then, these days don't right. know what Flavor Flav did. And security of the first world, anybody who has their onstage security doing choreography, <laughs> I'm paying attention. He said, no, y'all gonna have to dance as well. <laughs> right. <laughs> I'm getting my money's worth. <laughs> anyway. And no, I all, all I'm saying is, is that, there, that it was a voice and a message that I knew was important, even though I didn't understand why in the mm -hmm. moment. And yes, uh, I got laughed at being a scrawny white kid listening to Public Enemy. If you pulled up next to me in my in my beater <laughs> with that coming through the, the, the blown out speakers in uh -huh. my car. Yeah, you would laugh because too. they were blown out now. Uh, <laughs> Here, his, uh, his manager, Lori Bula, makes the point here, we brought the public, we brought the project to PBS and BBC Studios because they are unparalleled at creating great documentaries. Chuck D and I look forward to working with them to take this account of such an important movement to the world. People are finally open to hearing and learning about the history of all Americans, and we want to deliver authentic. You're going in with a lot of confidence there. Oh, yeah. <laughs> which I appreciate. Yeah. But, um, you know, all I can say is that there's going to be um, uh, a large audience of white folks watching PBS for this documentary. Four-part series. Congratulations, Chuck D, and thank you. It's interesting because you say it's going to be an audience full of white people, 
every time I've gone to a hip hop show, that's been my experience in real life. Now I know we live in Minnesota, mm -hmm. you know, so that there's there's that, and it would look very different in Atlanta or Memphis or something. Mm -hmm. But I think there's something to be said about the fact that it this audience it. has been right. there. You were there mm -hmm. in 1990, whatever, with the tape deck or the or the uh, CDs. We had CDs then, yes. Yeah, technology was there. What do you think of What do you think about the significance of this sort of thing during Black History Month? Hip hop isn't an underground genre anymore. It's mm -mm. the genre. It's the genre. It's yeah. the main genre. Right. Do you think it's well, of course it's important to sort of map that trajectory, but what do you think can be learned by uh, a, a broader understanding of that trajectory if if people just understand how hip hop became? It sheds this idea that um, I, I'm going to use words that I've heard other people use. Uh oh. Okay. <laughs> do I do I need to? It, you might. It's it sheds the idea that it's nothing but some ignorant poetry over an electronic beat. Mm -hmm. Right? Go on. Are you telling me you haven't heard people say that? <laughs> I have. I have. Okay, so don't <laughs> hate on me for repeating it. <laughs> okay. Anybody. So it sheds this. And what I, well, all I'm saying is that if you get a history, if you know where a hook or a sample comes from, the mm -hmm. amen break, yeah, sure. All of these things, if you know where it comes from, you get a greater respect for where it is. Yeah. And if you, I mean, talk about a story. Mm -hmm. It's not only a story, it is plight. Where's my boom for that? Oh, sorry. <laughs> I, I thought I was letting you cook. <laughs> so I, th this, I'm, I'm very big on the importance of history to understand, knowing where we were to understand where we are and get a look at where we're going. Yeah. Wow! Wow! That's incredible. I'm, you got me excited about this. I'm hip. Um, let's let's quickly circle back to the Super Bowl real quick. Oh, <laughs> you know, they do everything they can to get us to watch, to get us to break that deal breaker status that some of us have with the NFL. They got um, Dr. Dre coming. They got Mary J. Blige coming. Mm -hmm. I believe um, LL Cool J is going to be there. Snoop, you know, they're, so they're they're digging into the classic mm -hmm. nature of that hip hop. What's your argument? As and and we're repeating ourselves, but what's your argument of connecting that to the idea of classical music? Let's say national. I, I wrote a I wrote a piece for National Sawdust a while ago that connects Beyonce with the classical tradition and puts her in that trajectory. Mm -hmm. As someone who was there when Public Enemy came out, I was I was too young. So, you know, you were the one. What are your words in connecting those legacies? America's classic tradition of music and what we're going to see this Sunday from Snoop and Dr. Dre and all of these classic figures in hip hop. So, um Help me out. I don't know if I'm exactly following the connection between the Super Bowl and classical music. The Super Bowl halftime show and the concept, the conception of classical music as renewed, you know, by non-Western European standards. We talk about rap, hip hop as Ameri purely American music, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Argue that that's classical to me or to, to someone who might challenge you in that. And adding on top of that, your perspective on hip hop's trajectory, being old enough to have bought the tape deck when this was an underground thing and being here 
and knowing what I'm talking about when I say Ric Flair drip, you mm. know? <laughs> well, I only know that because of you. So thanks for that. No, I think I think I see what you're saying. But um, uh, when you talk about classical music being um, the, the voice of a heritage or, or where you come from, uh, your entire story, that makes it classic. That makes it yeah. classic. So then let's protract it out. That makes it classical music. When you point to American classical music, you have to look at, you know, because uh, one of our European uh, heroes, Dvorak, said it, you have everything you need for an American style of music in the Negro spiritual and the music of indigenous He peoples. said, you got it all right now. What do you, you have need me it? for? Don't, don't import it. <laughs> don't import it from Europe, he said. But hip hop and rap has been exported all over the world. Right. So there, there you have um, an example of the growth of a classical form of music. Is that wrong? <laughs> <laughs> did, I, did I get close? I love that. I, I love, <laughs> that's incredible. Yeah. I know that's radical for a lot of people to think about hip hop as something that's classical. Hip hop as classical music. How many we more, can do it. How many we, more? We, we, can get, we can get the industry there. Okay. We have all these different uh, eras of music that we name. Mm -hmm. How many more years do we go before people start referring to hip hop and R&B and, and rap as an era like that? One day they're going to be talking about it as a classical form. We might as well start now. Yeah, and I'm not, well, I'm not going to say that, how, how, how can I approach this? You don't want to give a year range? Well. Why not? Oh, sorry. I misunderstood the question. <laughs> I thought you were saying, when are we going to look back to the era of hip hop? Because my, my reaction was, we're well in it and I don't see it ending. Okay, but you're, at, you're saying how many years before? At some point in the future, people are going to look at, are going to look at this time frame yeah. and refer to it as blah, what, mm -hmm. you know, what, whatever word. Yeah. So how many years until it gets that status of classical? Hmm. I think we have to talk about communities and perspectives because to some of us, we often talk about classic. When we go all the way back to Eric B. and Rakim, mm -hmm, as mm -hmm. far as black folks and hip hop fans and folks who are around are concerned, that is classic hip hop. Now, they may exactly. not be using the word classical, but that's really what it means. At right. the end of the day, we're talking about foundational music to the genre. So I think for some people, that's here now. Mm -hmm. I think as we get more into history, let's say in 10 to 15 years when the Gen Zers are in their 30s, maybe that will be, you know, something that they see as even more classical because they're even more separated from it. So maybe instead of thinking about, for me, and, and maybe this is my cop out, but instead of thinking about a, a hard timeline, thinking about how this truth over the years will grow mm. the thing oh, is okay I can we see have that. to allow people to spread that truth we can't be silencing voices and we have to make sure that the classical institutions are allowing that perspective in until it's completely normalized mm. sure. okay i'm playing it safe <laughs> i i, I gave right. it i gave it up in uh, at the very opening so you know That's give me some right. grace here all right well we're gonna go ahead and get into the second movement what piece of music you want to i mean we talked about hip-hop so I, I guess you have some hip-hop to share I've what got have public you, enemy. What, what have you pulled out of your back pocket? Uh, the one that broke it for me. Can't trust it. Right, 
Talking about the one still going on. Mm, mm, mm. I mean, art replicating life. Isn't that what they say? You know? And imitating it. Imitating. Yeah. That's what I meant. Yeah. yeah. Mm, mm, mm. Public enemy. Classical music. I can't wait to... <laughs> I'm... To watch Chuck D on okay. PBS. Okay. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. No, that'll be great. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to get too hold far the, to hold, the weeds You got to hold the antenna just right. All right. We're here in the second movement, finally, where <laughs> Scott and I, we take a piece of music we've been living with this week, and instead of repeating it fully, we talk about it a little bit here and uh, talk about why it was really getting us in our bag. This week, Scott, I am going to honor, I'm going to um, offer a round of applause to a member of the Triloquy family, Joy Goodry. Joy's album came out nice. on Friday. It was a busy Friday of music, but their album came out. I've been listening to it back to back, and it is an incredible example of where we need to go, not only when we talk about the culture of so-called classical music, but that general aesthetic. There are two pieces on here I'm going to briefly share. The first one is one that I have shared in the past. It's called Voices of the Ancestors. To me, this is an example of not only that blackness and that classic blackness that many of us speak to, but you have the age-old ancestral aesthetics and sounds and thoughts with a contemporary approach to the bassoon, playing something fully improvised, playing something fully realized in the moment, and all of that being blackness and all of it being classical in many different ways, despite the fact that it's an aesthetic that many people might call crunchy or whatever. Let's listen to a little bit more of it here. You've been hosting the Contemporary Show over at NPR guest hosting for a couple weeks. How close to completely, uh, as a lot of people will say, experimental music, freely composed, that sort of thing, is the industry from where you work, where you sit in it, quite going there yet? Close. Getting close to that. Yeah. 30, 40%. Sure, I mean, sure. Enough that I can see it. I don't know if uh, the the you know the person who listens to radio only occasionally would probably sure. go, oh, right, right, right. This is way too much. That's one of my favorite pieces of music. I mean, it's top ten, not number ten. And I'm not just saying that. It it really just digs into so many parts of me. Not only as a bassoonist, but uh, as as someone who believes in Pan Africanism, who thinks about the motherland a lot, who thinks about the motherland and being black in a contemporary intersectional sort of way that I know joy has to think about. In incredible. And I know that that general aesthetic of music can uh, it will, I'll say that it supersedes the conversation of race and culture because it's a lot of black folks. It's a lot of people of color who aren't quite there yet if, with their ear and being able to take in that sort of sound and really contextualize it for themselves. I, see what, I see what you're saying. This might sound like a silly question, but I, I honestly don't know. Is there an African instrument that the bassoon is 
like a cousin too. I'm I'm sure there's some sort of double read at something. I I don't I don't know of it, but because as that piece first started, when the, and the bassoon came in, it was reminiscent of something, some other music that I've heard, and that and and that's the genius of Joy Goodfrey, right. you know, really really making that happen. Okay, I, I so I just wanted to bring that one up because. Uh, Joy put it on the album. Uh, they made a post saying that, you know, my standing, that piece of music inspired them to include it on this album. So I had to oh, nice. name that and remind folks about Voices of the Ancestors. Incredible piece of music. But the one I want to uh, bring in today, it it is in, in a similar vibe, you know, that we're talking about that, uh, the aesthetic that a lot of people might not be used to mm-hmm. with uh, when they consider classical music. Uh, the tune I want to talk a little bit about is Why is Toxicity So Yummy? I have something to say to that title in itself, but I want to play a little bit of this first. <laughs> The opening is very free, very loose, very open. As you get more into the piece of music, you really get into some of those dissonances, some of those uh, more red. I think about music and and colors oftentimes. Some more of those reds and oranges, you know, some some of those colors. And it gives me so much space to think. I know a lot of people would consider that sort of music distracting in a way but for me it clears my mind it allows me to go into my mind in a way that I can't when I'm listening to other types of music classical or otherwise and then when I tie that with the title why is toxicity so yummy I think about how the internet just loves the mess you know we're here talking about Joe Rogan we're here talking about all of you know the other stuff that is kind of you know, crunchy uh, in the world. And hearing music along those lines helps me get there. And no one is really doing it quite like Joy. And I feel like folks like Joy live at this really challenging intersection professionally and musically where you don't have the traditional classical institutions and even the more progressive listeners and thinkers in the field aren't quite ready to put that on an extra eclectic, so to speak. And Mm -hmm. again, not to cast blame, but to just speak to a reality. Uh, There's so much more music out there in the so-called experimental realm that Black folks specifically are engaging in our own unique way. And it's it, it blows my mind that so many folks, you know, just have a little ways to go before they can appreciate that, before they can hear something like that on classical radio and not feel obliged to write an email. I can't give you a timeline as to when um, music from that aesthetic will be as normal as a Philip Glass or a or a you know whoever the uh, 
I'm, I'm trying to think of the more classic experimental, you know, some of Schoenberg's stuff, Crumb, George Crumb, Alban Berg, you know, mm. we know those names, but we don't yet say the names Joy Goodry as often as we should. Mm -hmm. You know, I will put Julius Eastman into that category, you know, and, and all of those folks. So just uh, uh, all of this to offer a shout out to Joy and to invite you listening to get into that bag a little bit. Definitely go buy Joy's album and go check out some other uh, so-called experimental music out there, in, uh, improvisatory music, free music. Some, some people use the phrase free jazz because there's a lot to explore there. And if you really open your mind to it, you might be surprised where you can go mentally when you take in that sort of music. That track that you just played kind of reminds me of what I would like to listen to at 10, 30, 11 o'clock at night as I'm trying to write. Mm -hmm. That's just right for that. Yeah. Yeah. It soups up the creativity. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. Was that I soprano saxophone, you think? I believe it was uh, alto. It might have been soprano. Okay. I'll have to ask Joy. But again, uh, congratulations. The album is called Radical Acceptance. It's available on Bandcamp. I'll have a, a link there. And it's also streaming as well. All right. What you got, uh, Scott? Well, we're going to go uh, rather quickly here. But um, Jaya Sandara is an artist that I caught on to in 2019, I want to say. And his music came up just randomly. And there's one track in particular that the video is great. It was recorded in one of the warehouses over in the warehouse district of um, Minneapolis. Mm -hmm. One shot. So somebody guided the cameraman as he walked backwards. I'll link the video for you. And I guess he, uh, he performs just as Andara. So he's from Nairobi, Kenya. And um, he heard a Bob Dylan tune. And there was a, an argument over who did it, Guns N' Roses or <laughs> Bob Dylan, uh, knocking on heaven's door. White on white crime. And um, arguing. Right? So <laughs> I'm going to just bypass that. And uh, so he, he moves to the United States in order to go on like a Bob Dylan travel log, you know, a, a pilgrimage, mm. ends up in the Twin Cities area and starts to play shows. Taught himself to play guitar, but the voice, the voice is what drew me in immediately. And as he sings, I'm just getting good at saying goodbye. I, I don't think I believe him. tell you what's choking me up right now I, I almost have a tear in my eye and i am i am such a judy funny <laughs> shout out to everyone who gets that right I, I go so deep into my mind with this sometimes but i hear that drum beat that boom chum, 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 you know and i'm thinking about um shout out to maria isa for helping inspire this in my mind i think about that african drum okay exactly painted the, like the, the age drum. old and then i think about how somehow that drum traveled over to the, you know, survived 
all things and traveled over into the new world and evolved into the many ways it did all the way into this style of music. And then you have this artist who <laughs> makes a similar journey centuries later right. in a different way and is continuing to ride. Oh my gosh, that just blows my mind. Continues to ride that wave. What if we could see ourselves as that drum, as all one, as all here working toward the same thing? Incredible, incredible, incredible piece of music we have here. Just like we were talking about with uh, Public Enemy and the, uh, the, the era that we're in now and how many years until we give it the respect of, you know, naming a genre, mm -hmm. right? Or just going ahead and including it in classical. Someone heard Bob Dylan and was moved to go and pursue that sound. Don't, don't have me searching on the internet and next we have to say Bob Dylan was racist. <laughs> I don't want to go there either because uh, I, I am not a fan. Mm, and uh, mm, mm. that as, moved me. And as he sings those words, you know, I, I just hear so many different layers behind it. And the production value, like you said, with that, that drum persistently tapping in the back and the way his voice rings out and echoes, it, it just belies the line, loneliness couldn't do no harm. Did you hear the echo on that? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's, that's what got me choked. Now, this is what I wanted to make sure you spoke to. Andar didn't come over here and discover Beethoven or discover whatever. He discovered something that is rooted mm -hmm. in the United States, whether it be Bob Dylan and where he got his stuff from, you know, here in the in the uh, in the trajectory of American music. How can we not reframe the conversation of what is classical music when you're having what has been created here in America, not only inspiring people all around the globe, but inspiring them to create music like this. We have to reframe that conversation. We have been. We've been trying to. Anyway. <laughs> right, doing it. Anything else on Andara? Ooh, incredible. Uh, he also has a Tiny Desk concert that is excellent. I'm, so, I'm I mean, sure it is. I haven't seen it. If you just want to hear just raw, beautiful talent, Go and check out on Dara. Ashe, happy Black History Month. All right, well, we're headed into the third movement. This week's guest is Victoria Joseph. I had the great pleasure of speaking with Victoria Joseph, and I'm so glad that I get to feature our conversation here this week on Triloquy. Victoria Joseph is a violinist. She's based um, in Haiti. She's executive director of Friends of Music Education Haiti, which is a nonprofit organization that uses music as the engine driving culture, heritage, and social change. She's also the director of the New Victorian School, which is a bilingual English French school for children with a performing arts program. She is cultivating her world in her way, something that I, uh, I don't remember if it's recorded or not. But one of the things I told her is that, you know, with the incredible work that she's done, she could be a lot of different places. And she says that she has gotten interviews and job offers in different places, but she is dedicated to her people and her community. I think sometimes it's so easy for us to be blinded by the bright lights of whatever we want to call success mm -hmm. and to forget that there's change we can make exactly where we are. And that's what Victoria has done. So, you know, she talks about her father, his journey as a musician, uh, uh, 
uh, carrying the torch and continuing the the trajectory and the and the momentum he created and doing it all down in Haiti in a really incredible way. So um, again, very happy to share this conversation with y'all. Hope y'all enjoy to get us into uh, the conversation. Well, first of all, let me say uh, where we start the conversation. I asked her about black liberation and Haiti as an example of it. A lot of black people, when we think about uh, the means toward liberation, the example we have is how Haitians took over their masters down there, and now they have this black country, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and all. So I, I asked her about that. Is that understanding a part of Haitian culture in the same way that it's something that Afro-American people think about? So, you know, we're really, really interesting uh, way to start the conversation. We're going to get into it with a piece by an artist named Mazun. So throughout the conversation, uh, Victoria talks about a drum called the tambo. I, I had never heard of it, didn't know what it sounded like or mm. anything, but it's a, a key part, a classic part of Haitian culture and Haitian musical culture. And the artist Mazun has a piece of music that speaks to percussion sounds and drums of Haiti. So we're going to listen to a little bit of this to get into my conversation with Victoria Joseph. the narration goes you know it's kind of like history here it's always his story you know it's, it's kind sure. of told by the winners and I think we have the same situation in Haiti where it may not have been told in the sense of being you know proud of that or really and it kind of I think it missed with our sense of identity a little bit hmm. so um, based on my personal experience I will have to say definitely um, maybe liberated may not be the word that I would use as far as like Haiti and Haiti describes himself but definitely resilient and fearless and, um, you know, kind of just surviving, you know, pushing yeah. through no matter what. And so that's kind of why I think being reminded of that would, would really help with getting out of survival mode, per se, and getting more into really pushing for what's necessary to live and, you know, have a, a really maybe make some positive changes for the country. Oh, I wonder if you'll speak more to that, that, this, that, this survival mode. Can, can you speak more to that? Yes. I mean, we've, I mean, anytime you look at the news, it's always something, right? It's either an earthquake and a hurricane, some kind of, you know, political crisis. And I think it's just because we never really had the, I always say that we're kind of like teenagers thinking that we know everything, but may not necessarily um, have the right guidance because we never were were given the opportunity to build a a solid foundation. You know, Hmm. as soon as we got our liberation, it was one of those things that we had to pay retributions. Um, I mean, I'm not a very political person, but it's sure. just based on natural history of, of at least what I've noticed. But, you know, when you're paying reparations up to, let's see, 1804 up to 2003, you know, and then, of course, you're you become the black sheep because how dare you, um, you know, liberate yourself and be right. an example for others. <laughs> so, you know, in the way I think Haiti was really shunned, even economically, um, you know, not to, you know, trade with other countries and things like that. So we never really got our foot on the ground. And it's just been, you know being not set back after setback after setback and we never really got the chance to kind of build what we know we could have built 
Yeah. And, you know, I've never had the pleasure of spending any time in Haiti. I have uh, taught over in the Bahamas. And mm -hmm. one of the things that I was really shocked to understand about the Caribbean in general is this sort of uh, I hate to use this phrase, but this sort of pecking order when it comes mm -hmm. to Caribbean identity. I I've noticed the oppression of Haitian people even within the Caribbean. I mean, it, it, do you have any uh, experience there? <laughs> I mean, it's, I think we're all very proud of our cultures, you know, yeah. even, though, <laughs> I mean, again, studying American history, we were just a stop. We, we are all sure. the same, we just stopped in different places. And I think that's also a positive spin on that would just be the fact that we contributed so much on a global scale, you know? So I, I again, it might just be the mentality of, um, us just being such a proud people and really, you know, being proud of what we've been able to make of ourselves considering, again, the resiliency of it. Right. Um, and, you know, I, I think that's kind of more of, of what that is kind of like, a, I don't want to say friendly competition, but <laughs> we, like, we are like, if you're this country, we're this country, like we rep it and we rep it hard. <laughs> right. <laughs> and there is beauty in that. There is, there is, you know, diversity is everything. So I, I, I don't know. I, I, <laughs> it's interesting <laughs> to me as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You, you know, when when I think about resiliency, you know, you mentioned um, earthquakes, and I'm thinking back to to 2010. It's one thing for everyone, for the whole world, to come together in the moment and offer resources and and do what they can. But you know, as the years go by, that reality sorts of you know sort of mm -hmm. fades away for people who don't live there and aren't ex experiencing it. I wonder if you can speak to the continued impacts of the 2010 earthquake. I mean, there have been natural disasters since then, yeah. but even that one, I'm sure there's still some lasting impacts. Definitely, definitely. And it, and it goes back to the similarity of even what I mentioned about the liberation of not really ever having the opportunity to, you know, set that foundation. So it's it's the same thing. We, we're still setback after setback after setback. And it goes back to, um, you know, whether it's the political stance on things, whether it's, um, you know, there, there's just, it's just so much as far as not really rebuilding that foundation not really the infrastructure not it, it, there just was so much that wasn't done um after the fact so it really feels like now that we've even i feel like we can't go back to like even the day before the earthquake mm. even though we're 12 years ahead um so it's it's still a struggle it's very much a reality that we're still struggling with and you know I, i'm just i'm doing, just doing the best I can. at least with what i'm because i always say that you can only do what you can for you know, the, the things that you're doing and, yeah. you know, you can't really save the whole country, but you can save if it's just one person, 10 people, a hundred people, you just do what you can. Um, Cause again, we're surviving. It goes yeah. back, everything ties back together with that. And I think if we finally really had that opportunity to focus on, you know, trade, focus on agriculture, focus on the things that really are our strengths to rebuild financially and rebuild our economy and rebuild things like that. I think that would be um, maybe what would actually get us to where we need to go. Right, right. And I'm sure that, uh, you know, these tragedies have had an adverse impact on music specifically and, and, and music teaching. I wonder if you can speak to that as well. Well, music, fortunately, and, and I mean, they always say you know, music is the universal language. So it's something that from, uh, you know, anybody will, will tell you it's a great outlet, no matter, especially in moments of tragedy. Mm -hmm. And I think music from day one has kind of kept us very grounded in our roots, <laughs> you know, per se. And it's something that, um, you know, even just like the, the sound of what we call a tumble, which is like the Haitian drum, that's something that 
you know, you hear it, it's like a match. It's ma you just immediately forget about everything. And I mean, even just like carnival, no matter what is going on in the country, we are not negotiating carnival. Like have, <laughs> that is going know, to happen. Like that is going to happen. <laughs> and it, it just, I think it's just the one thing as far as, you know, with all the crazy and all the chaos, that's the one constant. Um, that is definitely something that we, we still take a, a very much a priority. Yeah, well, th that that's good to hear. That culture can't <laughs> yes. be destroyed. Yes. You know, yes. so you know, on on this show, we affirm classical music as cultural more than the Western European thing. You know, the music that really serves as the bedrock for the culture of mm -hmm. a people. You know, so for example, yes. in the United States, we talk about the Negro spiritual. I wonder mm -hmm. what you would pinpoint as Haiti's classical or traditional traditional, maybe even indigenous music? What does oh, yeah. that sound like? What is it? <laughs> well, I will be honest, I never really grew up much with the indigenous side, mm -hmm. um, mostly because of the fact that there were a lot of, um, you know, voodoo elements to it that we sure. were kind of like, don't listen to. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, my, and my background being very classical music, I definitely was able to kind of explore that classical music side in Haiti, um, more so than any other um, I guess musical genres. And we do have what we call like folklore, which is um, like the traditional Haitian rhythms. Um, again, the tumble was a big deal, the drums. Yeah. <laughs> and of course now in um, just my my living there and being a part of, you know, what we call like compa and, and zouk. And so these are the more popular, more accepted because it's more internationally accepted type of mm -hmm. genres of Haitian music. So that's kind of where um, at least my understanding of that lies. <laughs> I'm still learning. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But um, it's just very interesting that although, especially the classical music aspect of it, the, those who are very involved in the classical music community in Haiti really do try to include, they do a really great job of including those different genre elements into the classical setting. So into like choir, into orchestra, into, mm -hmm. so seeing and hearing a lot of these, um, you know, indigenous rhythms within like a classical music setting is something that I feel like it does not get as much credit or even visibility that it should. Yeah, yeah. What what role does, you know, you've mentioned the tumba a couple times. So I'm gonna have to do some research now. now I'm tambour, curious. tambour, T-A-M-B-O-U-R, tambour. <laughs> tambour, thank you. There you go. Uh, what, what role does the integration of those sorts of sounds within uh, some of the more Western uh, classical spaces serve? I mean, I, w what comes to mind for me is connecting, you know, the music that we're doing and who we are as a people back to the drums of the mm -hmm. motherland and, yes. and doing all those sorts of things. What, what's the connection there? Um, I think it just, it, you know, it, it's kind of like adding a little spice to your food. Oh <laughs> like yeah, we love seasoning. <laughs> <laughs> you know like we love the classical and it could be something that even if you have like for example a, a an indigenous melody it doesn't it doesn't it's not complete without that that haitian drum or those haitian rhythms because it's just part of it's just part of the culture and you know it's one of those things that again like carnival we as a matter of what's going on we need that <laughs> it kind of is like the heartbeat of of the country and of the of the spirit of the people so even in the classical music realm, you will see a tumble, you know, uh, someone who plays that or will include some kind of bass line that has um, these these different um, rhythmic elements. So it's it's I think it's something that, again, it just kind of it's part of the people, it's part of the soul, and and we need that to kind of just keep going. 
And is there challenge to this sort of uh, proverbial seasoning of the music? <laughs> are, are there people down there who say, "Oh, we need to keep well, this, keep this out"? That you know, <laughs> it's it's sad because since the earthquake, we've lost so many um, landmarks as far as like places that you know we used to perform. Mm. We've lost a lot of amazing people that had to travel because of the political situation that were really you know instrumental to. The, the community, the you know, classical music community there. Um, we have, I mean, there are institutions that support as best they can, especially with, lo you know, locations and things like that. But, you know, we have, it's now that I think we're really starting to understand the importance of archiving things and publishing mm -hmm. things and really promoting, you know, the, the, the excellence that is of Haitian, you know, music, classical music per se. And yeah. unfortunately there's just a lot of that generation as well that have passed on. So there's, it's, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's like it's a double-edged sword I feel sometimes it's like we, we missed a lot but there's still possibility regardless of the challenges that we have to still at least use what we have to really promote you know awareness about it yeah I'm finding more and more people talking about the importance of um, archiving specifically yes. because we've been in this digital world for so long it'll be easy yeah. in 200 years for people to see a dark spot in history because all of our stuff was on the internet and maybe yes. the internet isn't around anymore so I, I appreciate your mentioning that I want to um, back up and um, you know talk a little bit more about you I wonder if you can paint <laughs> a picture of your musical upbringing oh, what, what are some of your earliest musical memories Good. You know, if you ask my mother, she'll tell me it started, you know, at, at birth, not at birth, like at, at <laughs> even in the womb. It was one of those things where um, my father was a violin um, graduate student at Juilliard. Okay. His last year while I was, while I was, while my mother was pregnant with me. So it was one of those things that even then she'll tell you, I was always very reactive in her belly anytime he practiced, anytime she attended concerts. So I think it begins from there. Okay. <laughs> Okay. And um, when I was three, that's when I started um, violin with my father. Again, <laughs> he was very instrumental in, in my life as well. And um, it just kind of sent from there. I've It's in my DNA. I've, I, that's all I know. <laughs> and it's very much a part of me. <laughs> but was was the uh, was that welcomed amongst your uh, family and friends and, and your community? Or were you the odd duck for playing a stringed <laughs> instrument? <laughs> well, you know, my father taught. He taught at... Um, the school a school for handicapped children in Haiti where he, he grew up because he was legally blind so I, I I was definitely around an environment that was accepting of it was encouraging of it and I think he was vital in leading that um just kind of re like you know violent really changed his life and saved his life at the, in the, during the earthquake so I think he was you know of, of an ambassador of like the things that classical music can do to really change um, change lives. So people kind of had, he had that following in that sense. And I grew up around that, you know, he would give lessons, he would have choir rehearsals, we would have orchestra. So I was always around um, like-minded people. So it wasn't something that was necessary. I think I, I felt more shunned maybe when I moved here to the States to be like, you're Haitian and you play violin. Why are you an orchestra? And you know, you're kind of being the, the one or two black faces and right. I'm mixed. So that's even worse. <laughs> <laughs> You know, so it was like, you know, it's one of those things where, um, fortunately, it, that that's that community I really do miss um, in Haiti, and it, it needs we need to bring that back. Yep, and I think it's really beautiful the way that you've continued the work 
of your father and you know and, yeah. and and what you're doing now but you know before you got there before you got to where you are now what possibilities did you consider as a string player did you have plans to maybe join an orchestra or or, or what did you envision for yourself i i always felt like i was better behind the scenes oddly okay. enough because I, I my dad always used to be like kind of the star of the show and the star yeah. of everything so i really like to help him coordinate and plan things and i mean we, we i always performed but it was something that um for me it was kind of like the coordination process of of helping that come to life kind of stood out more to me so i, I was considering like arts administration at one point and kind mm -hmm. of like going into that but i lean more towards of course music education and business and things like that which kind of helped me mix it and create my own kind of you know arts administration that was before arts administration was a thing yeah <laughs> not yeah. dating myself but you know <laughs> um so that's kind of why um i really kind of enjoy the administrative aspect of like whatever it is that we need to plan to put other people forward i feel like i'm it's my turn now to pave the way and pay it forward yeah actually you know you mentioned uh your dad uh working with uh students with disabilities that's actually yeah. something that uh, I, I didn't know in in prepping and, and reading about you really? I, I i wonder <laughs> how growing up in that sort of environment with with that you know in your periphery how that impacted your studies of music education i know that traditional you know i i studied music education as an undergraduate and i know that as i think back there are so many things that we just leave out and forget about in the most so-called prestigious of music education uh programs they're just uh uh you know accommodations for mm -hmm. people with different abilities that we don't think about i, I wonder if if that played a role in your study well you know i used to hear his stories about that this was before like ada you know was a right. thing uh, right. and um it, it was something that he despite every challenge always overcame them <laughs> and that was his thing was just like you know don't give up no matter how hard people you know no matter how hard it is or no matter how hard people try to discourage you from things like if you have a goal go for it and that was that was his big thing like i remember even him talking about having to take orchestra class and he would have to sit there and memorize his part memorize and there was one story he used to share about how you know as an as as a string player if you're the inside player you have to be the one to turn pages mm -hmm. and if he was an inside player it didn't matter he still had to turn pages so not only memorizing the music but memorizing when he had to turn pages Ooh. for his sighted partner you know it was just one of those things where it was like it was i'm sure they have more accommodations now of course but like i said this is dating, <laughs> dating my time of not having these things and, I, and i'm glad to know that i'm sure that they've um, done more about it, but it was interesting to always see, um, like different lessons of, you know, blind people learn the music before they practice the notes. Mm -hmm. you know, it was different things like that. Um, and back in the day, the tape, you know, the cassette tapes was a thing. So you had to sit there and, and I would have to either read it or you know, play it for him or something like that, where it was like, okay. And then, um, he would memorize it from the cassette tapes. Um, so different little tech tricks and techniques like that, where um, it was just very interesting, even like playing the piano and, and physically like, okay, two, three, this is how you, you maneuver around the piano as someone who's, um, you know, has a sight and uh, impairment. So it was just interesting to learn. There are a lot of techniques and I do hope they're more developed now than they were back in the 80s. <laughs> yeah, because I have to tell you, that makes me feel a way right now. You've you've lived with that story of the, the page turning for a long time. Yeah. Your, your dad, your dad is out there doing, going over and beyond. He's learning the music, memorizing yeah. the pay, and doing all of this. And this person over here, fully able, sitting there just having just, the time oh of their well. life. You know, not oh probably well. not even thinking about it half the time. <laughs> you know, and that's what he always used to tell me. He's like, you 
know, you're Haitian, you're a woman, and you'll be considered black. No matter what skin color you are, you will be mm -hmm. considered black. And that's going to be three things that will make life more difficult for you. So you'll have to work three times as harder than the average person because of those um, labels. And it, it was something that always stuck with me. Well, obviously, your hard work <laughs> is definitely uh, paying off. I, I wonder if you Thank could you. introduce folks uh, to the new Victorian school. What, 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 what's the oh. mission? What, what's the purpose of this institution? <laughs> well, it was something that my father, my parents created. So my mother was a missionary who was teaching English in Haiti and um, my father having the music background um, around maybe when I was four years old. That was around 91 when there was a, a really bad embargo in Haiti when they were trying to, something with the, pres the Ari President Aristide in Haiti, again, I don't get political, <laughs> yeah. but it was really dangerous at that time to even like go to school. And uh, my mother was like, well, I can, you know, we can homeschool her. And my dad was like, well, I'm giving her lessons anyway. So let's just keep her at home and we'll do what we can. And then of course the neighbors found out about it. They're like, well, here, take my child too. And it became kind of like one neighbor, another neighbor. And soon it was like, you know, 10 kids and my dad, of course, being the, the hustle, yeah. <laughs> that hustle mentality, he was like, well, let's create a school. So it started out as the Victorian school in 91. We just celebrated our 30th anniversary last year. So still going. Um, and that's kind of the concept. What Like you have the academics and the arts that are very much intertwined, like a magnet school. Mm -hmm. So that's really what it is. It's kind of taking education and the arts to transform lives in the way that my father's life was transformed. Yeah, wow, so that's, wow. That's the goal and that's the, I see my father in every one of those students and I'm like, let's go, we got stuff to do. We have, you know, the world to change. You you guys are gonna be the future leaders of, of you know, wherever it is that you end up. So, you know, really represent yourselves and our country well. <laughs> yeah, well, what, what, I wonder what your conversations are like uh, with some of the parents of oh. the students because I know my mom really my mom especially had to really be talked into putting any yeah. money toward you know a read or I didn't start taking lessons mm. till college but I anything that costs any money my mom just really had to be talked into it I, I wonder what those conversations with your students parents look like well the thing is that they they pay a basic tuition but it really doesn't cover anything and we don't ask them to cover anything musically related mm. so the instruments are donated everything we need are donated through a nonprofit that i'm i'm reviving at the moment it's called the joseph legacy foundation mm -hmm. um and that's something that i'm hoping that the foundation can supply those resources that are needed so that it can still be absolutely free to them because times are hard and i mean we just post COVID, it's already crazy. But in Haiti, you have COVID and you have the political, you know, right chaos that's right. down there. So we really, it's like just a basic tuition fee that just to kind of, you know, keep us afloat. But really, honestly, it's they don't pay for anything. Not strings, not anything. And some of the parents really, after a year or two of of seeing their child, you know, child in the program and things like that, they find ways themselves through whatever resources they have to give them instruments so that the children can practice at home. So I, I do see that it's, it takes some convincing, but after a while they kind of see it and they understand it like, wow. And, you know, seeing me, seeing, and we always, you know, we have a day where we honor my father. We have a day where we honor different, you know, Haitian musicians. So it's, it's again, it's the awareness and the education of like, wow, this isn't just some instrument that white people play or yes. <laughs> my political incorrectness or now or whatever this case may be. But it, it really does kind of take some convincing and, um, eventually they do realize it but that's one of the main things that my father was very adamant about like don't be, these people can't so if you even try to encourage them to do something that you know that they can't then no
it's not going to happen. So make it free. Those who can provide more will provide more, but make it make the baseline free for everyone. Yeah, that's I, I love that. I feel like that's what we, we have to do moving yeah. forward when we talk about accessibility. Are there mm -hmm. specific challenges to, to uh, dealing with a nonprofit in an international sort of way? Are there more rules, more red tape for you? So that was one of the issues. I mean, my father passed in 2015. So the first few years was kind of prioritizing, making sure the school was okay. But mm. it wasn't until COVID in this past year that I really was kind of like, okay, how do we make this happen? Um, and there's a lot of nonprofits that do support um, things in an international stand. As long as you're based here in the States and a lot of your activities, as far as like, um, you know, raising raising funds or uh, you know getting those donations, and maybe having like a mentor. You need some kind of element stateside mm -hmm. um, to kind of facilitate whatever it is that you're providing to a different country. Um, and as as you grow, obviously, you can even become like an NGO type of status, like USAID or Save the Children. Type. I'm nowhere near there, but <laughs> uh, yeah, it's a goal yeah. eventually. Um, but that's something that um, it's it's possible. There's a lot of nonprofits that raise funds just to provide tuition support for children to go to school in Haiti. Um, so there's, there's, it's not too, too, it's just a matter of how you label it accounting wise and the programs that you have to keep it, um, you know, stateside. So like, we'll do like mentorship programs virtually now where that still serves um, a community here on the States, but it, it provides the resources that people in Haiti need. Oh, wow. Okay. I see. I see. Mm -hmm. I, I noticed, you know, when I look at uh, the new Victorian school's mission and, and all of those things, I noticed the word empowerment, empowering yes. <laughs> young people. What yes. does, what does musical empowerment for kids in Haiti look like? Giving them an outlet to express themselves without words and hopefully building the, again, empowering, building the confidence so that when it is time for them to use their words that they can. Yeah. Wow. That's 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 really beautiful. Yeah. I wonder, you know, when these kids um, take these lessons and, and go to school and, and learn all of these things, who are the Haitian musicians, maybe even the Haitian composers that they're oh. learning about? Are there names that we don't really know stateside that are regular <laughs> names for them? Yes, um, they definitely learn about um, both living and past like Haitian I want to say what I call them, I call them powerhouses. <laughs> it's yeah. one of those people that have really um, made a difference and played a huge role in the classical music community in Haiti. So we have, for example, composers like uh, Justin Eli, um, Ludwig Lama. There's, there are a few like um, that are common as far as Haitian actual composers. They were the ones that studied in France and came back to Haiti and mm -hmm. you know composed music with the French classical music training, but with the Haiti elements into it. Um, we do have a lot of artists like uh, Micheline Le Denis, who's a pianist who's 90 years old and she's still wow. going strong. Um, we have a vocalist, an uh, opera singer who, um, Nicole Saint-Victor, I'm gonna, I don't know her age, but she's up there, <laughs> but you know, she's- <laughs> She's seasoned. She's, she's a powerhouse, okay? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. She's a powerhouse. So we do have, um, you know, these kind of, and that's something that I hope, again, archive, like we need to get together and just list, you know, these people that have just done such a huge, um, you know, they, they've done a lot of work in Haiti and have uh, created a generation of musicians, um, generations of musicians, I should say. And and that's something that definitely needs to be written down in the history books. So yeah, yeah. So, yeah I definitely um, is something that they do study and they do um, learn about. 
So what's the relationship between these composers and musicians, Haitian composers and musicians, and the Beethovens and the Brahms that I'm sure they're also learning about, or are they <laughs> learning about um, them? <laughs> you know, it's, it's interesting that you say that because there was something that I was watching the other day that was like, you know, there's no American history without Black history. Exactly. And I think it's the same for Haiti. There's no, there's no history you know, as far as like, however the French decided to label it, there's no, there's no French history without Haitian history. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I think it's one of those things where, um, you know, you kind of have to give them the information and then put it into context of today. Mm. You know, these are, this is what the background is. Okay. So these are the Beethoven's and the Mozart's of the world, but, you know, underlying that there are also a lot of black faces, a lot of Haitian faces that are also just as, um, you know, technically sound as Beethoven, as Mozart, but may not necessarily have had um, the recognition. And, and so it's a conversation and it goes mm -hmm. back to, you know, that sense of identity, that sense of self and that sense of confidence as well within themselves that even though you may not feel like you have a voice now, but that doesn't necessarily mean that later on in life that you don't not just find it, but actually use it. Yeah. And how lucky those kids are to have such a great start. See, we had to unlearn. We, yeah. <laughs> we, I mean, we, we were that generation that had to, to kind of figure things out. You know, things didn't make sense, but it kind of was like, OK, why, why not? And we, I think we're that generation that asked questions. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which, which is beautiful. So I'm curious to see how the next generation, you know, with that ask question, um, you know, kind of push from us what they're going to do with that. Yeah. You know, there are a lot of organizations, certainly uh, stateside, that mm -hmm. would love to just pluck you up and <laughs> pay you a lot of money to be the assistant director of whatever and X, oh, Y, and Z. You know, what fuels That's your <laughs> but what's what fuels your continued dedication to the new Victorian school? I'm sure you've gotten offers that you've turned down for the sake of the work <laughs> you're doing down there. You know, it's funny. I, I had accepted an offer three months before having to move down there. And it was, it broke my heart to kind of be like, I'm sorry, I really have to leave. But this family legacy, like family comes first. Yeah. And I remember like whenever I went to, you know, handle the arrangements of, of my father after his passing, like just kind of standing in the middle of the street and seeing, you know, my name on the wall. Cause it was, it was named after me. So it's like, you, it's a sense of responsibility that washed over me at that point of like, there was not even a thought of, no, this is where I need to be. Like this, this is where I need to be. And that's like, I don't know how I'm going to do this, but I just took it a day at a time, you know, <laughs> it was just one of those things. So, um, and then of course, just again, seeing my father's faces in these kids, like I see further because of, you know, sitting on his shoulders. So it's kind of one of those things that, well, now I'm standing up. Like I want to have all these kids on my shoulders so they can see even yeah. further than I could even dream or imagine. And I think that's, that's kind of what gives me purpose. And that's what, no matter how bad it is over there. People, if I had a dollar for every time somebody asked me to come back, you're, asking, you're right enough, <laughs> I'd probably have enough money to do a whole performing arts center in Haiti. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but it's like, but I, there's so much, this, there's so much potential here, you know, mm -hmm. and it's, they don't have that. So, you know, again, my father's philosophy of help one person, hope they help 10 people. Those 10 people help 100. So if I have approximately between two to 300 students per year, I have about three, you know, 30 to 40 staff members that's a lot of people that I'm impacting. And it's like, yeah. I can't just up and leave. That's selfish. <laughs> I can't just up and leave. And it's nice to be able to, especially now in the times we live in, really have a sense of like, wow, I'm responsible for what we put in these child's minds. You know, like we're, we're responsible for educating them in a certain way. And they've, they've gone through the, the norm. 
and it's not working obviously so it's mm-hmm. like i kind of feel like that's my challenge of okay what can i do to really change what we teach these kids and how we teach not just the kids the staff as well because it's all a universal mindset type of reset almost um and that's even within myself i had to go through that process so i'm still in that journey and i'm i'm hoping that they will kind of follow along with me and maybe we'll actually be able to do something amazing yeah when you <laughs> when, when when you think about your your vision you know looking forward what are the grandest goals uh, that that you have i mean can we look forward in in the coming <laughs> decades to a uh haiti philharmonic or or you know some huge institution no, what do you see i i really do see a group of kids that that love themselves that love their country that put forth everything that they have to represent to change the narrative you know because mm-hmm. every time you google haiti it's always something bad right. and i really want to showcase the positivity um that i witness every day um and i definitely think that from a musical standpoint you know having that background having that that sense of self kind of reestablished can really again i see my dad in all of them i see them walking through doors of opportunities that I could never imagine and whether I'm able to create those opportunities in Haiti <laughs> we'll just pray that that's something that can happen considering everything that's going on but I would love to see just kids playing together I like some kind of you know performing arts center something where like they can come together they play concerts they play chamber music I don't know if I, I'll be able to see a, a philharmonic orchestra because there are a lot of things at play when it comes to that and other other organizations that I feel may have better resources to do something at that level sure but for more the adult standpoint, but for the kids, I think that would be like an amazing like youth, like really amazing youth orchestra that just promotes and 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 really serves the country in a more positive light. Well, how can folks help make that happen? How can they <laughs> learn more about the new Victorian school, contribute? So, Where can they get all that information? The Joseph Legacy um, Foundation. Um, like, like I said, the website is under construction right now, but we're in the process of um, just getting things together, relaunching um, within the next few months. Um, so the, the website is Joseph Legacy FDN, so foundationabbreviated.org. So shoot us an email, kind of keep in touch with us, and then we'll definitely add you to the mailing list and be up to date with changes and, and updates and things that are happening. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'll, I'll be sure everyone <laughs> gets that information. So I appreciate the, that. Thank you. The, the last thing I, I wanted to, uh, you know, throw it, you get your ideas on. So lately mm-hmm. I've been on this journey of solidarity in, in many mm-hmm. different ways, you know, not only class solidarity here in the United okay. States, but solidarity when it comes to the diaspora. I feel mm-hmm. like black Americans specifically are beginning to do a better job of acknowledging and celebrating blackness as something global and not yeah. just, you know, American, not not just mm-hmm. what, what we see. I wonder what your thoughts are on decentering the Afro-American struggle for the sake of a more united diaspora. Oh, that's a that's a heavy topic. Yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> um, I I mean my earliest experience with that was just kind of, you know, when when you move here and people find out you're Haitian, and it was kind of like, mm. <laughs> and and it didn't really understand that until I was much older when it was kind of like, you know, the Caribbean. Uh, how do you say this? It's kind of like, you know, we get the jobs that may necessarily like black Americans have been trying to shy away from. Sure. Uh, I, I remember that whole conversation, that whole briefly. Um, but I think 
if we, again, thinking of that concept of we all came from the same place, we were just left on a different stop. Mm-hmm. Yes, we had different upbringings. Yes, we had different experiences. But ultimately, a lot of it is shared. Um, and I think if we kind of focus more on like us having the same children from the same mother, you know, us being brothers and sisters and not so much, oh, you're this, you're that, I'm this, you know, I think that might be a little bit more helpful as far as, you know, creating unity between us. Um, so that's kind of where I stand with that. I don't really see so much like, like, yeah, it's on a map, but ultimately we share, just like I'm sure Jamaicans are very close, you know, have a very close relationship with music, the same as Afro-Cubans. Af- mm-hmm. You know, it's just one of those things that we all have very shared experiences. And if we put whatever it is that we feel like we have that doesn't unite us aside, then, and we really focus on a common goal and a common, you know, direction, I think that might be what will pave the way for unity throughout. Upati by Michael Benjamin there to wrap things up. Another great example of the classic musical tradition of Haiti. Have you spent much time in the Caribbean, in a, in a Caribbean island Haven't nation? Haven't once. I've been really? to Central America, but not the Caribbean, no. The, I've never been to Haiti. I've spent lots of time in the Bahamas. It's a vibe. And that, and that, and that music sort of reminds me of it. You know, uh, let me be problematic real quick. Oh. Um, <laughs> you know how they talk about CPT, like colored people's time? That's real in the Caribbean. I mean, in those island nations, you know, time is just a suggestion. And that is just one of the ways in which the culture of of being around water and fruit, trees, beautiful birds, you know, that's just what that will do. You know, a beautiful <laughs> part of the world and beautiful stories and music that come from the world. A huge thank you once again to Victoria Joseph. I'll have all of her information in the description of this opus. One thing I wanted, before we quickly go through the triloquy for this week, one thing I wanted to reprise, Scott, (laughs) and get some of your thoughts on. Victoria talked about her father being blind and sitting on the inside of the violin section, you know, in a, in an orchestra and the tradition, at least, you know, for her father was that the inside violin player has to turn the pages so that, that the outside violin player can keep going. So Mm -hmm. you have the sound of the orchestra maintained and all of that. So despite the fact that this man couldn't even see, he was memorizing all of the music and still had to memorize the page turn, Damn. which we need to celebrate that and should celebrate that. But what my mind goes to, I'm not going to cuss them out. I see I'm watching my words, but to the sitting next to him who just want, who, who doesn't want to make any accommodation or doesn't want to do any sort of shifting the tradition for the sake of equity for this man who is already memorizing all the music, can't even see, you know, mm. and is still going to turn the pages. When we, t- you know, you mentioned earlier, um, you've mentioned a couple times, perseverance, you know, surviving. When we were talking about that drum, the way that it has survived the eons and traveled all over the world, we honor the survival of things. We don't often enough talk about 
why those things had to survive, what was being pushed against. And I think we can, you know, contextualize things in a so-called positive way, but I don't think it's harmful to speak to the converse. What do you think? We talk about call-out culture. We talk about focusing on the good. Sometimes I think we have to just face the reasons for the perseverance and for the survival and for the pushing ahead or whatever. We've talked about uh, people of color all around the world. Finishing the sentences? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you were, you mentioned earlier uh, one bad apple. What's the rest of that? Mm-hmm. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Did I get close to an answer? Yeah, you got close. You got close. But when Victoria told me that story, I was beside myself. I'm like, I could, how could you sit there and just let, and and just not, it's not about letting the blind man turn the page, but having no, and maybe it was a conversation. I wasn't there, but having no consideration for just shifting the tradition following the rule just because it's a rule. That's what too many of us are doing in the arts, and we have to shake that up. Anyway, I want us to trill our way into the fourth movement with music by Joseph Bologna Chevalier de Saint-Georges, since we're talking about uh, the Caribbean and, and Black folks. And there's another connection I want to make there, but you know, a lot, of, a lot of the Black History Month programming has included the music of Joseph Bologna, so mm-hmm. we're going to listen to a little bit of it to get us into the fourth movement. And we're going to have a talk about opera programming. The Riverside Philharmonic there in an excerpt from the overture to La Main Anonyme by Joseph Bologna, Chevalier de Saint-Georges, historic black composer. Okay. I feel like that aesthetic, despite the composer behind it, reinforces an aesthetic that we need to get away from. Okay. So I, I make that argument most times of the year. I turn the other cheek <laughs> during Black History Month because there are still people who don't realize and understand the historic nature of Black involvement, even in the most traditional conception of Western classical music. Mm-hmm. Some of the organizations aren't even doing that, okay? I want us to move away from the shame or the uh, weird feelings about saying something about it. I'm not the only one who has noticed that. I'm not the only one who recognizes that there is an issue or could be an issue. Scott, how can we normalize calling things out and not feeling like we're a part of cancel culture I was gonna or say, call do you, out culture do you, do you, or was, whatever. You you're, know? Talk, you're talking about cancel culture light? <laughs> so again, I'm not talking about the institutions. I'm talking about lighting the fire of courage under the average person who happens to have some proximity to opera. I think that it's going to come from uh, all perspectives. You know, the inspiration for that is going to come from all sorts of areas. We already talked about Colin Kaepernick in sports, mm-hmm. who's going to, who is and will continue to inspire people. Um, who in opera is leading a charge right now? The Black um, Opera Alliance. That's... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> See what I did there? Yep. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, when I talked about the Minnesota Orchestra at the beginning of this thing, mending relationships, I can say that the Met is there. I've, I've been in personal contact with folks at the Met as we develop programming towards equity and all mm-hmm. of those things. So I'm at the table, you know, and that's why I feel even more of a responsibility to speak to this 
on my public platform, the relationship mending is happening. It's it's there. That doesn't absolve us of our responsibility to raise awareness on our platforms and in our communities about places where the institutions can do better. We're going to wrap up with uh, uh, something that a lot of people have been called calling outrage marketing. So we're here in Black History Month. Bed Bath & Beyond has slapped so-called African prince. <laughs> it's, it's, it's crazy to even say has slapped African prints on their products in celebration of Black History Month, not collaborating with Black artists or, or you know, whoever works in candles and lotions and soaps, but just putting the sticker on their already existing things. Mm-hmm. We have an organization called T-Shirt Palace putting a young white boy in their Black History branded things. So that you was- mean that y'all couldn't even find a... Uh, a, a black model to give a little bit of money to for Black History Month. Y'all, y'all had to do that. Uh, there was news about a school outside of the Boston area called the Severian School. I, I guess it's some sort of private school. In honor of the first day of Black History Month, they served fried chicken in the in the, in the cafeteria. <laughs> Listen, all of this to say, the arts organizations who are putting up their, you know, uh, black. Uh, History Month stickers or talking about Florence Price as we must always or, you know, doing these performative things for Black History Month. It all looks the same. You know, you're branding your aesthetic, your Eurocentric definition of classical music. And you're instead of slapping an African print on it, you know, you're slapping the name Florence Price and William Grant still on it Mm. in a way to maintain Mm. that idea of classical music as as we define it in our institutions mm. and to be able to say happy black history month everyone now that's not me diminishing the impact of william grant still and florence price of course her piano concerto is in my top 10 and william grant still one is in my top 10 for the way that it takes that very uh traditional eurocentric form of a symphony and applies blackness to it you know we have the jazz trumpet in the first movement with the uh, spiritual coming from the english horn you know we have that black love song in the second movement we have the juba dance in the in the uh fourth and the third movement we have the struggle and the um and the fight for hope and all of those things you know i know the piece of music okay i know mm-hmm. it and and so the the fact that it could fit into that mold is one of the reasons why I love it. I think we have to go even further and in honor of Black History Month, really find a way to honor Blackness with a little bit more depth. Let's talk about Joy Goodry. Let's talk about voices of the ancestors during Black History Month in our our, uh, classical institutions. Let's challenge the notion of that word and talk about soul and gospel, things that are surely classical, American classical it, during Black History Month in our classical institutions. Let's regard the Negro spiritual as early music, the way in the same way that y'all worship Hildegard von Bingen and all of the motets and all of those things. Let's put that same level of respect on the Black music, the early Black music here in the United States for Black History Month. We can't take that Eurocentric symphonic mold, that aesthetic, slap some Blackness on it as it exists in the canon and say happy Black History Month and leave it at that. It, you would do well to pair, if you want to put Porgy and Bess on, pair it with Miss Sally's Party. William Grant sure. Stills, Miss Sally's Party. Do something like that. 
And it's great if you want to buy some Black History Month clothing or memorabilia or whatever. Just don't do it at Bed Bath & Beyond because <laughs> that does not help a single Black person when you buy it there. And if you come over here in a dashiki and tell me that you bought it from a Black-owned store, <laughs> you're going to have to tell me the story because I'm going to go up in there. And I'm going to say, ma'am, ma'am. <laughs> no. Hey, you've worn the lederhosen. You you wouldn't put on a a, a fez and 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 don a dashiki. <laughs> I might I might have fez. I might have fez. You look good in the fez. Anyway, thank you everyone for uh, listening. Happy Black History Month. Rest in peace, Amir Locke, and we'll see y'all next week. 